0: The Medical Alley podcast is brought to you by MentorMate. Custom software needs vary significantly. Whether you're powering a medical device, overhauling your back-end architecture, or reimagining your patient experience, MentorMate can help. Harnessing the technical excellence of Bulgaria, MentorMate provides end-to-end software services in all sectors of healthcare. With deep expertise in design, development, cloud, and software support, MentorMate helps healthcare clients administer world-class care through technology. Learn more at MentorMate.com. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Medical Alley podcast, the show where we hear from healthcare leaders from across Medical Alley and beyond. About the work they are doing to drive the transformation of healthcare. I'm your host, Bobby Patrick, with the Medical Alley Association. And today I'm honored to be have as my guest Deborah DeSanzo, president of Best Buy Health. Welcome, Deborah, and thank you for joining us today.
1: Bobby, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So before we get into your role at Best Buy and your vision for the role it plays in the transformation of healthcare. I'd like to take a few steps back and talk a bit about your background and significant experience in healthcare industry and how making a difference for patients has continued to be your primary driver throughout your career. So let's, let's start with one of your early roles at HeartStream, uh, a company that revolutionized the uh, automatic external defibrillator industry and market. Tell us about your time there and how you led that business to become the dominant player in the AED market and save the lives of countless people throughout the world.
1: Oh, Bobby, thank you. So I love Heartstream. I love the team at Heartstream still today, and I love what we did there. When I when I got to Heartstream, 1997, we were a small company. We were a four million dollar company. We were a hundred people. The company had just been acquired as a wholly H- owned subsidiary of Hewlett Packard, and um, we were a small company. But this is what we had. We had this amazingly beautiful defibrillator, which was under five pounds and used a type of technology which enabled us to use less energy and therefore make it smaller. This meant that really for the first time, we could put defibrillators in places where they had never been before. Up until that time, defibrillators really had been in hospitals and ambulances primarily. But we knew that if you had a cardiac arrest, and you were defibrillated within two minutes of having that cardiac arrest, you had an 80% chance of surviving. And for every minute that went by after that, your chance of surviving went down by 10%. So we had this gigantic passion to put defibrillators in public places. We had the form factor, we had the team, we had the science. And we had very large competitors who were saying that our technology didn't work and that we were gonna kill people. Um, So we really, when I got there, HeartStream had been trying to fight the battle of going into hospitals and going into emergency systems. And we said, but that's not really where we wanna be anyhow. So let's do what we wanna do. Let's go into early access defibrillation out in the world. And where should we go first? It was winter of 1998. We laid out every place where you could put a defibrillator and we challenged ourselves of where would it make the biggest difference? And we chose airlines. We chose airlines because if if you have a cardiac arrest in an an airplane, two things happen. One, you die because up until that point, you couldn't be defibrillated. And second, the plane gets diverted. So there was a need. Um, American Airlines was the first um, air carrier that, that chose us and Delta was the second. And really it was the Delta Airlines deployment that ignited the automatic external defibrillator market. We had, we're, we're doing a pilot with Delta Airlines. We've put 30 defibrillators on 30 planes and we trained 30 flight attendants on how to use the defibrillator. The training happened in Salt Lake City and Bridget McDonald was flying after the training from Salt Lake City back to Atlanta, her home base. The defibrillator had been put on the plane the night before. Bridget McDonald was sitting beside her colleague who had also been trained. Um, Bridget, I recall, was 39 years old. She was a young female who ran, gardened, and had two young children at home, and at 10,000 feet went into cardiac arrest. The reason I remember this story so well is that I met Bridget, this happened in, um, in the springtime and then I, we were in front of Congress um, in the fall talking about why defibrillators needed to be in public places. And Bridget McDonald walk, walked up to me and shook my hand and said, I'm dead and now I'm alive thanks to what you do. I get to hug my two young children and smell the flowers in my garden. The point was, Bridget was not anyone who you typically thought of having a heart attack or a cardiac arrest. She was young. When she went into cardiac arrest ten thousand feet in the air, her colleague went and ran and got the defibrillator that had been put on the plane the night before. Put it on. Put the pads on Bridget and saved her life. And that story got Delta to put them and all of their fleet and all of the airlines followed. We went from airlines, um, Chicago O'Hare was our first airport. We went from airlines to airports to casinos because there's cameras everywhere on you in a casino. So if you have a cardiac arrest, you can definitely get a defibrillator there in two minutes. And we just really mapped out where, if you have a cardiac arrest and a defibrillator shows up in two minutes, where will we save a life? and we focused on that all the way until we introduced the heart start home defibrillator that we that we sold in people's homes um so that's the heartstream story it was a a, a beautiful team and we really made an impact on people's lives
0: that's an incredible story i just, just the timing on that and and what a better example of, of of why that technology was so important and now they're ubiquitous right i mean it's it's hard to go to a public place that doesn't have an AED somewhere so that's uh, that's awesome. After Heartstream, uh, you moved over to Philips Healthcare and up, up the ranks, uh, becoming CEO of Patient Care and Clinical Informatics, and then CEO of the entire enterprise. And during your time at Philips, uh, you know you successfully executed a number of initiatives, but but one in particular has significant relevance to the current shift in healthcare that's that's going on now. Uh, to a more remote base, which is the first-to-market next-generation patient monitoring and wireless sensors. And so, can you tell us more about the development of that product line far before people were thinking of, you know, delivering care through uh, through a, a webcam, right? And and how that positioned Philips as a leader in the remote care space and how it's impacting patients today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Bobby. And another great story and another great team. So, first of all, I would have stayed with the resuscitation business. Forever, Phillips had acquired uh, Hewlett Packard's Medical Products Group, and and um, you know I was still doing defibrillators, and I actually loved that business. Phillips had asked me to run the CG business. I said no, the nuclear medicine business. I said no, the third one. They're like, you really need to take a bigger business out. It's patient monitoring, or you know you're not going to work here anymore, essentially. Um, and so I took it. But there was a gentleman. Um, half of the business was in Berlin, Germany. And there was a gentleman called Werner Haas. I am sure that people listening to this podcast, because Werner was very well-known all of the industry. Werner ran the measurement part of the Philips patient monitors, and he was really brilliant. And I knew that we would not be successful, and I would not be successful unless Werner and I really had a plan to go in and and win this together. So I had Werner interview me before Phillips was putting me in the job, but I had Werner interview me. And in the interview, I remember saying to Werner, So Werner, you must have something that you're developing under the table that's really cool, that is the future of patient monitoring. And what is it? And Vernon, honest to goodness, he pulled out. He said, Well, Deborah, I do have. And he pulled out a wireless, a wireless ECG and a wireless SPO2 um, sensor. And I said, that is it. But by the way, it wasn't only the wireless ECG, and it wasn't only the wireless um, um, SPO2, but it needed a backbone infrastructure. And there was another gentleman, I think he's still at Phillips, his name is Dale Wiggins. He was the CTO of patient monitoring. And I said, and Dale, you must have something under the table too. And in fact, Dale did too. And this was the notion that we would build a patient monitor because this was 2006, we would build a patient monitor like an information system and we would give it an information backbone. And yes, we would put machine learning in the system so that we could combine all these measurements together and then begin to do early warning scoring or predictive alerts. And this is really what built the Philips patient monitoring dynasty, the thought that we're going to take the wires off because wires make people sick, we're going to make it an information system, and we're going to do machine learning and we did it and then Philips research was working on direct life the first ever activity monitor and we put some of our technology into that to make it better. And um, we had acquired Lifeline and then we put this wireless, this wireless technology into Lifeline as well. And really, you know, there's a, there was a lot of work to do. We didn't have the batteries that could could operate this. We didn't have the algorithms that could operate it. But the teams really came together and um, really built that that dynasty for, for Philips.
0: That's awesome. And, uh, you know, again, just just thinking about the foresight of the, uh, you know, of, of you all to, to, to see where things were going to go and how useful those would be. Of course, no one, you know, again, no one, no one knew how useful it would be in a pandemic 15 years later, but nevertheless, uh, still incredible technology. So, as, as I noted, you know, you also led the clinical informatics business there and uh, a field that, you know, it's continues to increase in importance, it, but one that you really elevated in your next role uh, as general manager at IBM Watson. Tell us a little bit more, you know, based on your experiences with clinical informatics and at IBM Watson, you know, what are the biggest challenges facing the use of data in healthcare and how patients, you know, including yourself, stand to benefit most from its use of, uh, from the use of those in their course of care?
1: Yeah, so it's a funny question. What are our biggest limitations from data? Our biggest limitations of data are is that the data is incomplete and it's not interoperable. Now, everybody says that, so I'm just gonna dive into that a little bit more. It's incomplete because what goes on in our day-to-day lives is so much important than the, the one or two or four times you get to see your physician. In fact, we also know that what goes on in our daily lives, what we eat, what we drink, how much we sleep, where, when, and how we exercise, if we exercise is so much more important to our health than our genetics or even our history is, right? It's just so much important. But that information never shows up in your electronic health record. It doesn't show up in your electronic health record really for two reasons. One, we are not really good at logging what we eat. Who wants to log what you eat every day? I mean, it's just You can do it for a week and then you get really tired of it. We're not really good at logging our exercise because mostly like when we miss a couple of times exercising, we don't want to log it anymore. We love to log it when we're doing it. Right. Um, And it's hard to log when you sleep. So this information that's vitally important to your health never gets into the electronic health record. And even if it did what we would have would be duplicative data and data that is missing fields and just data that is really hard to do anything with, even with the smartest um, machine learning algorithms to do it. So what the opportunity that we have really is to um, find systems and processes that really allow you to capture your activities of daily living, and then get that melded into the electronic health record, or at least in a way that your physician can really make sense of it. Today, we're really far from that. Today, we're really far from that. But I think once we get to that place, um, we're going to make a big difference in people's health.
0: That's very interesting. And the, the idea of supplementing, you know, the the official record with your own data is, is something that uh, is, is, you know, as you noticed is going to be vitally important to, re- to really making use of all the data apps that are coming out now, right, and really integrating that all together. So, you know, now you're at Best Buy, and the president of Best Buy Health, and a company that's not known as a traditional healthcare company. Uh, so tell us why, what motivated you to take this role at Best Buy, and how its lack of history in the healthcare industry is an advantage as the traditional models of healthcare delivery continue to be disrupted.
1: So two things really, one, uh, remote patient monitoring into Corey Berry. So remote patient monitoring. So I went through the Phillips um, patient monitoring survey. What I didn't tell you was that we did our first remote patient monitoring project in 1997. And there was lots of clinical data showing that, for example, congestive heart failure patients, um, if they're monitored at home, their chances of, of crashing, getting back into the emergency department, dramatically reduce if they're monitored at home. So I have been a huge believer in remote patient monitoring for, you know, a, lo- a lot of my career. And then um, COVID hit. And I always stayed in remote patient monitoring, even though it lost money, because I'd say, one day, this is going to get reimbursed. So COVID hits. And all of a sudden, now this is the day. And I was thinking, you know, is it time I was teaching at Harvard, I still do teach at Harvard, but I was teaching at Harvard. And I'm going, is this the time to go back? Should I put together a couple of remote patient monitoring companies and go to PE and Best Buy called me? And um, I had a lot of respect for what Best Buy had already done in health. You know, they had bought Great Call, they had bought CST, they had bought Biosensics, And I thought those are three really smart acquisitions, you know, enabling seniors to live at home, helping um, patients on Medicare with their social determinants of health. And then also, a, of course, an artificial intelligence machine learning company. I said, those are three really awesome acquisitions. You could do something with that. But really, what cinched it was um, Corey Barry. Corey, I love this story because Corey sent me an email, and she said, "We got your amazing resume." And I'm like, "Corey Barry's is telling me my resume is amazing." I love this woman. Um, I will talk to you anytime. I don't have time in the week. Just tell me anytime you're available on the weekend, and I'll talk to you. And I thought the humility of this woman, who was the CEO of Best Buy. Willing to talk to me on my schedule on the weekend. I'm going to talk to her. I spent two hours on the phone with Corey and I was just completely sold. One, I was sold on Corey Barry as a CEO. I think I've worked for a lot of CEOs and I'm just going to say Corey is number one in my book. She's the best CEO I have ever worked for. And then two, her commitment to health. I've had other CEOs say that they were committed to health and maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Corey is absolutely committed to the good that Best Buy can do and helping to enrich and save lives through technology and meaningful connections. And she's absolutely committed to making, having Best Buy make a difference in, um, um, in healthcare. So that's why I'm at Best Buy for Corey and the difference that we can make in the world.
0: That's a great story. And we certainly are fortunate to have Corey here in Medical Alley. She's a tremendous asset to the community uh, at large. So thanks for sharing that. So, uh, and you know, you touched on this a little bit. So the shift to healthcare at home and increasingly hospital at home uh, is a significant one for improving the use of technology by patients and caregivers, though it has its own set of challenges, such as access, access to the care for certain populations and familiarity with the technology. Uh, what are some ways that industry can help to overcome these and other challenges for patients as healthcare continues to move uh, in that
1: direction? Yeah, absolutely right, Bobby. So this, this is the, the question. And one, of course, it's patient-centered. Now, every company that I've ever worked for has said it's patient-centered, but you know we really weren't. We might have been MRI-centered. We might have been defibrillator-centered, but really patient-centered. And when you think of a retailer, a retailer is completely patient centered. When you think of, when you think of you're going to get a home gym, right? It's completely centered around you. Where do you want to work out? How do you want to work out? What, what, you know, uh, what exercises are you going to do? It's completely patients. It's completely people centered. And that's where we need to move healthcare to too. So I'm going to tell a story. Two weeks after I joined Best Buy Health, my husband had a stroke. I can't believe it. He's a young man. He's 60 years old, right? He's he's that he had a stroke. And I, you know, I went in the bedroom and I've been in healthcare for so long that I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, the right side of his face is drooping. So I rush him down to Leahy clinic here in Massachusetts. And because it's COVID time. So I had to drop him off and you drop your husband off. You don't know, my gosh, what is happening in there. And um, you know, they, they called me, they said, luckily he had a mild stroke. Um, and the next day I went, was able to go into the hospital room and his neurologist came in and I couldn't imagine this five years ago, but the neurologist is telling us about the stroke. And then he says, so this is what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to get a blood pressure cuff. I see you have an Apple phone. I want you to hook the blood pressure cuff up to the Apple phone, download, take your blood pressure every day, download it to your Apple phone. And then what you're going to do is you're going to take those measurements and you're going to send it to my Epic here at Leahy Clinic. My husband has been in technology his entire life, and I have literally been doing this my entire life. I want to tell you, I went to Best Buy. I bought the Withings blood pressure cuff, right? But I want to tell you, it was non-trivial. I have been, I have like 40 Apple devices. It was non-trivial to download the blood pressure information to my husband's Apple phone. And then it was even less trivial to get it to go, to hook up into the my epic electronic health record. So this is the good that we can do in the world. All of that where people don't really think about how can we curate medical devices that work for the type of condition and the age that you're at? Well... Here's my commercial, Best Buy can do that for you, right? Curate those devices, help you hook it up into your Apple phone, and then help you get it to your physician. And by the way, those activities of daily living that I spoke about before, this is really where I see Best Buy's place in the world, in people's homes to help them curate the devices they need, help them get that into wherever they need to get it to. And then by the way, create algorithms that combine that data so that we can really understand what's going on in everyone's daily habits of health, not just their quarterly or their annually habits of health.
0: That's, that's another great story. So looking back on your career, uh, you've, been, you've been a lot of places, done a lot of really cool things, seen a lot of changes. So what, in your opinion, is the most underappreciated development within healthcare? Let's say just during the last decade, and and why do you think so
1: I completely think it's artificial intelligence machine learning and particularly natural language processing having to do with conversation this has come so far in the last decade as it relates to healthcare and healthcare terminology and i see you know we talk in healthcare a lot about the burnout of the primary care physician and how physicians are spending too much time having to document document in the electronic health record or other places the advent of conversation using natural language processing has really come a long way. So now devices in physicians' offices can understand what the physicians are saying, can understand what the patient is saying, and can document that in the electronic health record, and then for the bill and then for the follow-up notes. And um, I'm really hoping that the world embraces this technology because it's going to make a difference in the health of our own physicians, it's going to make a difference in our health as well.
0: Very good. So last, let's end with this one. Uh, So as I was doing research for this podcast, I came across an anecdote that you've shared in previous interviews about a conversation you had early in your career with Bill Hewlett. Can you tell us about that and then how it impacted you in your career?
1: Bill Hewlett of Hewlett-Packard. I was very lucky because I was working in tech early in my my life. And actually, I was not working in health tech. And then I was working on an engineering workstation that needed a new application because we weren't going to be powerful enough to do um, a weapon system or whatever else they were used for at the time. Someone introduced me to the um, Dr. Bob Scalbasi at the University of Pittsburgh, and we did the first ever telehealth system. We networked 250 Workstations together. We integrated them with the Hewlett Packard monitors. We put voice and video in. We actually did a three D reconstructions of CT images, the first ever. And um, um, and we did an algorithm, an evoke potential algorithm that you know today we would call AI, and then we just called it math. But um, so this is this is in nineteen this is nineteen eighty nine, right? And I was sitting in, so University of Pittsburgh is going to launch this thing. And they said, well, you can come sit in this 12-hour brain operation. I was a tech person. I did not know if I was going to faint or throw up. Literally, I didn't. But I was sitting there. And in the middle of this operation, I said, wow, this technology is really helping the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, the neurophysiologist. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And I did. My company got bought by Hewlett-Packard. And so now I'm in Hewlett-Packard. I'm sitting in Waltham, Mass. And it was the time that Dave Packard and Bill Hewlett had come back into the business. I was so lucky to be able to learn from these gentlemen. And I was sitting at my desk with Bob Scalbasi, actually. And all of a sudden, Bill Hewlett walks up and sits on the end of the desk. Now, he was He was, you know, a a god to us. It was just like, oh, my gosh, he's sitting on the end of my desk. He was doing this management by walking around. He said, so what are you doing? So I start to spew out this technological nonsense about the power of our network. And he says, but I asked you what you're doing. So then I start spewing out more technical nonsense about how we had the greatest imaging capability of any workstation so we could do 3D reconstructions. And then he raised his voice and he said, I asked you what you're doing. And I was so nervous and not thinking I just spurted out. We're saving lives. And Bill Hewlett had this um, famous expression. He would say, very good. Carry on, carrying on. And it just that told me, what are you doing? There's nothing to do with the technology. What are you doing? I'm saving lives. Good. Carry on, carry on.
0: That's a good note to end on. And, and as, as we have learned through our interview here, that, that seems to have been forefront in your career. Uh, throughout healthcare. So uh, a meaningful conversation and uh, with a a legend uh, in, in tech, nevertheless. So very good. So Deborah, this has been an excellent conversation. It has been great talking to you. I really appreciate your time today.
1: Bobby, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Great.
0: And thank you for everyone for listening. And please join us again soon for another episode of the Medical Alley podcast.